careful now. Boing. So cool to be playing vinyl. Vinyl. Took the record off the turntable. You ready for this? Welcome to Behind the Vinyl. Here's your host, Stu Jeffries. Welcome back to another chance to learn a little more about the music you either grew up with or just discovered and all the cool stories about how the songs came to be. In this episode, three artists drop the needle on one of their biggest hits and tell us a story or two about it. The always charismatic and energetic Dennis DeYoung, formerly of Styx, has the scoop on Mr. Roboto and how a PBS special was his muse for the song. So I I combine these ideas of censorship um, and technology into the story about this rock star named Kilroy. More from Dennis shortly. First up, Keith Hampshire has an amazing story about how a song you could only buy at the ballpark got stuck in our heads forever. Here's Keith with more. There it is. Okay. So, you probably want to know how this happened, huh? Well, so do I. I'm an old man, so I'm not going to remember too much, but 1981, a couple of guys were hired by, I think it was J. Walter Thompson, advertising agency, to write a song for the Blue Jays to go with a promotional video. And they were going to pitch it to all these different uh, advertisers and try and get more support for the the ball team, you see. So um, Jack Lenz and Tony Kozenek um, sat down and wrote this song. And then they started auditioning people to come and sing it. So I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50, I don't know how many guys they auditioned. But uh, I I was just one of the guys that went in and auditioned. And... um, uh, I listened to the song and I thought, gee, that sounds kind of like a Randy Newman song. So I thought I'd give it a little Randy Newman kind of touch. Uh, I don't sing like me, I sing like other people. So um, uh, that's how the, uh, I got the gig because they thought, hey, that Randy Newman sound sounds good. So um, uh, I uh, auditioned, I got the song and I sang it. And uh, a few years after um, Jack and Tony would sell it at the ballparks, the Blue Jays, of course, got into the World Series, and um, everybody wanted a copy of the record. So um, uh, the record started selling like hotcakes, and uh, they even put it in record stores. Before then, uh, you could only buy it at the, um, at the ballpark. So anyway, um, the song, uh, one morning I'm sitting reading the paper, having a cup of coffee, and a little blurb in the corner of the newspaper says, um, the OK Blue Jay song has just been certified gold. And I went, whoa, a gold record, I've never had one of those. So um, I, uh, I got on the phone and I phoned the record company and I said, hey, I'm the guy that uh, sings the Blue Jay song, and I hear it went gold. Oh, one moment, please. Get somebody else. Hi, I'm the guy that sings a Blue Jay song, and I hear the song just went gold. Any chance I can get a caught? One moment, please. So I got transferred uh, three or four times. Finally, somebody said, oh, yeah, 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 it did go gold. I said, "Um, any chance I can uh, maybe um, get a gold record? They went, oh, yeah, I, I guess so. So anyway, they took my my particulars and whatever. Boom, there it is over. And um, the uh, um, a few days later, no, a couple of weeks later, somebody comes to the door, a courier, and he says, we have a, uh, um, a record for uh, uh, Keith Hampshire. Um, are you him? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, okay, uh, that'll be $81, please. So yes, I did get a gold record, and um, it now proudly uh, sits behind my uh, toilet in the, uh, in the washroom. It's the only place my wife will let me put it. And I'm very proud of it, but because it is my only gold record. And um, that's the story about OK Blue Jays. Anything else you need to know? 
You're listening to Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. I'm your host, Stu Jeffries. Thanks for the download. Still ahead, how technology, industry, and rock stars came together to produce a catchy tune for Sticks. Before we get to that, Gowan tells a good story about how a visit to a jail cell inspired a seven-minute song about the thought process of a criminal. That melody that starts a criminal mind, I was uh, was still living in my parents' basement, actually, when I came up with that melody. And... uh, I kept coming back to it for a couple of weeks. I was just, this front part of the song, I kept playing it. Couldn't find any lyrics that fit with it that that felt authentic to what that melody was kind of inferring. And uh, this is long before the chorus had had arrived in my mind, even the melodic part of the chorus. Uh, And a couple of weeks later, it was in the summer, it would be in the summer of 1983, because a couple of weeks later, I went to the I went to the Canadian National Exhibition, and this is where there's some. This is where some of the the, the the legend of the song kind of begins to kind of take off, where people got the story a little bit wrong. But I'll, I'll clarify it now. There was in the automotive building. There was a display put on by the Canadian government of the Canadian penal system, and they had a room about half the size of the one we're in right now, where they had an actual jail cell that they had transported from Kingston Penitentiary to the X. And I was a big lover of going to the X every year since I was a kid. And uh, no one was looking at this display. It was just people walking by and going, oh, that's creepy. You know, and so of course that made me extremely drawn to it. So I went over and I, I met the guy that was the curator. He was, he was a retired prison guard. And over the course of the next half hour, I went and sat in this jail cell. He shut the door, locked it, and I just sat on the, on the cot type bed that they had. And there was actually a bed dummy in there where, that was made out of paper mache, the kind that, that an actual prisoner had made up in an attempted escape. Uh, and it, you know, it was very crudely done. It was made out of newspaper and stuff. He had eyes painted on it and a face and just so that it looked like it was under a blanket and the guards might pass by the door as he was pulling off the great escape. Um, but just sitting in there alone, and although the act was going on around me, I just got the feeling or tried to project the idea or, or drink in the idea of what it would be like to have to spend your days in a place like that. And uh, the guard felt like we kept chatting, you know, just loosely chatting. And I said, well, what, how long, you worked there for 20, over 25 years. He said, yeah, he says some of my best friends were, he said, some of my best friends were guys who were in for murder. And I, he said, they're, they're actually the easiest to get along because they've, they've got it out of their system. I said, well, who are the worst? He said, well, Sometimes armed robbers are upset. <laughs> so we're discussing this kind of a light but heavy discussion. And then he said the word recidivist. And a recidivist is someone who habitually comes back to jail, can't, can't seem to live a life outside of the, the confines of a penitentiary. And every time they come back in, there's no real remorse. They just feel like, oh, I did what I did wrong was I got caught and I know what I have to do next time. So I love the idea of this person pleading their case in a courtroom and then finally copping to the 
to the fact that they really are just as dark and as as bad as they use in the song as people have believed for all these years. Instead of instead of turning around saying, I was framed, I was innocent, he has a moment of clarity where he decides to tell the truth about himself. When I went home, suddenly the next morning, it's one of these things that within 20 minutes, the lyrics just poured out. And the chorus of the song came out. It just, it flowed from this melody. It's just suddenly, a criminal mind is all I've ever had. Ask one who's known me, who's known me if I'm really so bad. And the pause was just to say, I am. So that's what I, that's the, the birth of that song. And what was really brilliant about Columbia Records was they had the foresight, uh, the president there, Bernie DiMatteo, realized when his two 15, teenage sons wouldn't stop playing the song, this is long before the record came out, he said, you have to make a video for this. It can't be too dark or it won't get played on television. So I had the idea of, of incorporating animation into it and turning myself into a, a cartoon character, um, especially on the I am moment, which is the darkest moment of the song. But to suddenly have the grinning I am turn into a cartoon, I think it, it suddenly made it commercially viable. So the song could be listened to by anyone. And once they saw that and saw the imagery that went with it, and I think over the years, I've come to believe that everyone has this dark side in them, no matter how much of it has made it out into the world. And uh, the potential is always there, and I think the song taps into that. And the admission that, that that's in the, in, the, in the guy's soul is there. Um, I guess the other things I'd mention is we recorded this, of course, part of the Strange Animal album at Tittenhurst Park. So Ringo Starr was living in, that was his home at the time. It's where John made Imagine, uh, John Lennon made Imagine. So Ringo heard this song being played in his house for a few months. <laughs> and I wonder what he thought of it, because I remember him always mentioning cosmetics as being a, a, a favorite. But this, this dark piece and Tony Levin and Jerry Murata and David Rhodes on guitar for this one, a little bit of Chris Jarrett. And producer David Tickle, he just got it. He really understood how to bring out the, the emotion of it. And we mixed it at Trident Studios in London, England. And it was the most advanced mixing place I'd ever been in at that point. And, and when we finished it, and then months later when we finished the video, I was just proud of it before it ever came out. I just thought this is a good piece. And I mean, the song has changed my life twice. It was, I went from my parents' basement to a number one song. <laughs> you get to live elsewhere. And, uh, and then years later when I joined Styx, as I've mentioned, it's the first song we ever played together the first time we got together. And uh, since then it's been a Styx song as well. Great guy and phenomenal storyteller. That was Gowan with the criminal mind on Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. Okay. The moment you've been waiting for, what's the deal with Mr. Roboto? What does it mean? How did it happen? What do you hear if you play the song backwards? Here's former frontman Dennis DeYoung with more. 1981, the Paradise Theater album, we had a song called Snowblind, which was about the perils of using cocaine. And we had these moron young ministers in the heartland of America, either Iowa, Nebraska, 
who were um, singling out people who were putting backward satanic messages on their songs. We were one of them. The band that did Babe. Seriously, dudes? And Snowblind, they said, if you played it backward, the opening line is, uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, okay? And it sounds like Satan moves in our voices if you play it backwards. And we thought, well, so we went and we went and we looped it and did it backwards. It does sound like that. But as I've said many times, we had enough trouble making these records sound right going forward, let alone backward. So I just got to thinking, and I wanna, I did Nightline with um, Ted Koppel. I was on uh, Phil Donahue's show in those days about censorship. And I got to thinking about censorship. So I wrote this whole story about a future where rock stars are put in prison. And we just come back from Japan and I'd seen, um, uh, I, I learned out what, what Don Morigato meant. And robot in Japanese is robato. So I thought I came home. So anyway, I see this PBS special on automation in factories. And they show this gigantic space and all these machines are you know, doing welding parts and there's nobody in there but the one guy. And he walks to the door, turns off all the lights in the place and leaves the building and you still hear the machines going. And I thought, oh my goodness, if there was ever, uh, you know, a perfect example of technology and what it can do to human beings, there it was. So I, com I combined these ideas of censorship um, and technology into the story about this rock star named Kilroy, who essentially was every man, and he has this rock band, he watches Presley and the Beatles, and he forms his own rock band, and that's set in the future, and in the future, there's this character, Dr. Everett Righteous, who owns his own cable network, and he's part Johnny Carson, and he's part um, fundamentalist, preacher, but very charming. America falls on extreme hard times, Donald Trump, and, no, just kidding. It, it, economic hard times, as a vast depression session, and he convinces everyone it began with rock and roll. That's when the morality and the whole America went to crap from the beginning of Elvis Presley on down. And like in any 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 anything from Hitler, Mao, you name it, they must define the other. In this case, the other is rock stars. So these rock stars are going to be put in prison. They get rock and roll banned. And um, they put the rock stars in prison on these prison ships that are guarded by Japanese robots, which are robotos. So I needed a song. I was going to come up with this elaborate stage production with film, storyline. We were going to do something no one had ever done before. The musicians were going to play characters themselves and act on stage, depending on who you ask. And um, I needed a song to go from the film, this 14-minute film, into the first thing you see on stage would duplicate the film. So I needed a transition. I wrote this song. And you could look this up, kids. Kilroy was here. It's probably on the internet someplace. Everything is. Stop with the porn for five minutes and go look at it if you're interested. So the deal is, um, that's a good screen. Um, the, the deal is, is that the music gets banned, the, the rock stars Kilroy's put in prison, and then check out the story. So anyway, in this song, it's just a transitional piece. I wrote it. 
This is not, once again, like me, this is not a hit record. And my wife says, and my best friend Daisy, that's a hit record. No, it's not. At the, you hear the lyrics? What are they? At the end, I'm yelling, I'm Kilroy. What? That can't be a hit record. Record company thought it might be a hit record. So we released it. It was so vastly different than anything we'd ever done. It was never intended to be the first single. The first thing was going to be um, Don't Let It End. You know, it's a typical sticks ballad. But there it went. went to, you know, it, it became a number one record on one chart. It was a hit in Japan, of course. Um, but it was so different. I think it scared some of, some of the Sticks fans. But that's the story. But, you know, once again, I wish I'd have written 10 more because if I say Domo Arigato to you, what are you going to say? Say it, guys. Domo Arigato. That's what people say. It's in the culture. I don't know how that happened. It was an accident. That is a man, trust me on this, that you could sit and chat with for hours on end. He's got a million great stories, but we don't have the time. That's it for this episode, and thanks for listening. I'm Stu Jeffries asking a favor. If you love music and the backstories, check out our previous episodes of BTV if you haven't already. Good thing is, we've always got more on the way, so make sure you check back. See you next time. This has been Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. Hosted by Stu Jeffries. Audio production courtesy of Doug Morehouse, Dan McIntosh, and Troy McCallum. Thanks for listening.